Welcome to Peace Lab, the podcast focused on current events, faith, and peacemaking from a Mennonite perspective. I'm Jason Boone of the Peace and Justice Support Network. Glad to be joined by my friend Hannah Heinzecker, executive editor of the Mennonite magazine and website. Yeah, good to be back with you, Jason. Nice to talk to you and a real treat today for a lot of people, especially for me, I'll just say a good friend of mine here on the podcast. Titus Peachy, and Titus, it's good to see you. I, I imagine you are flying high because your beloved New York Yankees have advanced in the playoffs. That's that an accurate assumption. <laughs> yeah, I always say it's, it's uh, nice to, to um, be excited about something that's totally against my principles once in a while. Exactly. Uh, Titus, uh, he backs this evil empire of the New York Yankees, and <laughs> Hannah, well, we haven't been able to talk about this, but can we just go ahead and endorse the Houston Astros here as a podcast? Can we get behind Absolutely that? not. Absolutely oh, no. Not. Okay. Chicago oh. Cubs. Chicago Cubs all the way. So <laughs> what can I say? Okay. We're going to have to solve this offline and, and maybe talk to Titus about some other issues then, uh, which is why he's on today. And of course, uh, Titus served uh, for a brief period with MCC as their peace education coordinator. I think that was 35 years, Titus? Uh Five years in Laos and then 30 years with, with uh, Peace Education, right? Right, right. And so, Titus, uh, we got you on the podcast today to talk about, I guess it's a, there are several issues at play here, and we're going to end up talking about sort of what are the effect, long-term effects of war, what does peacemaking look like when you're in it for the long haul. I think there are a lot of lessons that we're going to be sort of gleaning today from your experience, but that all starts sort of with, uh, with the experience of, of a country in the Vietnam War. And I think a lot of us, just speaking for myself anyway, have been fascinated by the recent Ken's, Ken Burns documentary on Vietnam that was on PBS, and it sort of brings a lot of these issues back up again. So can you help us understand how was the nation of Laos impacted by the Vietnam War? Well, there were a lot of similar dynamics at work uh, as happened in Vietnam. Uh, Laos was also uh, a nation that was coming into its own, wanting to throw off the colonial powers and seeking independence and France was the colonial power in the region. And so there was that real push and movement toward uh, freedom from uh, domination by the colonial powers. The US, because of its concern about uh, communism in the world and the impact of Russia and China in that part of the world, kind of sided with uh, the French in that conflict and kind of took over that role. And uh, rather than becoming involved in Laos the way it did in Vietnam with boots on the ground, it became involved in Laos uh, with a nine-year air war. And that was uh, intended to stop the communist takeover of Laos, number one. And then number two, it was intended to stop North Vietnam from taking material, weapons, and soldiers through the southern part of Laos into South Vietnam to support their war effort there. So uh, Laos was very, very heavily affected over a nine-year period by this huge uh, air war. And uh, yeah, I can go into more of what that impact looked like or felt like, but that's the, the big picture. No, that, that's a great overview, Titus, of, of, uh, of sort of how Laos was involved in this and, you know, and some of the, the big picture items there. But I guess if you do start to get a little closer to the ground, well, what are some of the you know, cluster bombs is a big part of this, right? And their effect. I guess uh, two things. One, can you talk more about that, but maybe even before, how did you personally start to get involved and, and understand the issues that are at play? 
Well, I was in Vietnam from 1970 to 1973 doing alternative service as a conscientious objector. And I was vaguely aware of the fact that there was also a war in Laos, but not, not in any detail. Although we would frequently see uh, B-52 bombers flying overhead going north, some of them obviously going to North Vietnam, but some of them also to Laos. And so it was um, after we went to Laos in 1980 that we began to understand much more about uh, this problem. Uh, MCC workers went to Laos first in 1975 and then began uh, to have opportunity little by little to travel to some of the areas that had been bombed. And uh, we traveled to a lot of areas that had been bombed during our five years there. Um, you mentioned cluster bombs. The U.S. flew 580,000 bombing missions during the nine years in Laos. And if you do the math, that equates to one bombing mission every eight minutes around the clock for nine years. And uh, during those bombing missions, they dropped um, 270 million little cluster bomblets. Cluster bomblet is about the size of a tennis ball. It comes in a big bomb container that has maybe 600 of them in one container. The container falls from the aircraft, splits in half, and then hundreds of these little bomblets spread out over a wide area and then hit the ground, and they're supposed to blow up on impact. But about 30% of them did not blow up, so there were still millions and millions of them left in the soil after the war ended. So uh, villagers at the time of the bombing, uh, really suffered a great deal. Uh, many of the villages were bombed, their houses were burned. I talked to many villagers who spent nine years living in caves in order to escape the bombing. Uh, they had schools in caves, they had medical clinics in caves. Um, and when they traveled uh, between villages on footpaths, they would often take branches of trees to carry with them so that it would look like a tree. They saw an airplane coming or heard an airplane, they could stop in their tracks and, and appear like a tree to the, uh, to the airplane. So this created an awful lot of difficulty at the time. And then the cluster bombers, because many of them didn't blow up when they hit the ground, uh, created a problem after the bombing runs were over because as they began to work in their fields and gardens and dig around in the soil, they often hit these buried cluster bombs, which then blew up and injured and killed them. And uh, we can talk more about that long-term impact later, but that's some of the impact at the time of the war uh, that we became aware of and MCC workers became aware of as we began uh, doing some traveling in Laos and, and meeting villagers. Well, Titus, I wonder if you could say a little bit more moving into that long-term impact. I think sometimes when we think about wars, we tend to think of them as a set length of time when violence is happening. There's kind of a start date that we learned in our history books and an end date. Um, but what did your work teach you about kind of these long-term ongoing effects and impacts of war? Well, it's very long-term. It's it it goes through many generations in a variety of ways. Even today, 40, 45 years after the end of the bombing in Laos, whenever anybody gets ready to build a school or dig an irrigation canal or do some kind of development project, the first thing they have to think about is we have to build into our budget enough money to do demining in order to clear the bombs. And uh, so it increases the cost of development. Uh, it creates danger for uh, people plowing in their fields or working in their gardens. Uh, in village after village that we visited, including a recent visit there in April and May of this year, 2017, 
we visited with a village family that uh, lost a child because the child found a cluster bomb on the way home from school, thought it was a toy, uh, began playing with it, it dropped, blew up, and killed the 10-year-old child and injured 12 other people in the village. Uh, and the story doesn't end there. So the, the family that lost the child, the accident happened right outside their house. So they felt, we really can't live in this house anymore. It's too close to the trauma. So they decided to move. Uh, a cousin donated land. They went to the new land to which they could build their new house. They found another bomb on that new land. They called the ordinance disposal team. The ordinance disposal team found 30 more bombs that they had to blow up and destroy. So it's like the trauma just goes on. So there's psychological trauma that happens as well as the, the worries about physical safety. People who lose an arm or lose a, a leg, you know, have to uh, have medical care, prostheses, artificial limbs, uh, the rest of their lives. Those have to be checked and updated uh, from time to time. So there are just multiple effects that continue uh, long after the war is over. And uh, that's certainly the case of Laos. Uh, and because there are still millions of bombs left in the soil, you have this huge, huge, huge cleanup job because they estimate that at the end of the war, there were probably 80 million unexploded bombs left in the ground. And um, I'll say more about that's how, how that's being addressed a bit later. But uh, to date, they may have found and destroyed one or 2% of those. So there have been efforts made, especially recently and last year, President Obama, there was a lot of news about some commitments that the United States has made to help along the way with some of these cluster bomb cleanups and, and dealing with these, the aftermath of these bombings. I guess you're up to date on that, Titus. Can you tell us what was proposed last year and maybe even where we are with that? Yeah, I'll give just a, a very brief uh, background to that. MCC workers worked on this issue for years and years and years. Of course, we're Mennonites. We don't have any expertise on bombs. So we didn't have the technical capability to know what to do. But we experimented. We outfitted a tractor to see if it could uh, beat the bombs and uh, destroy them. That wasn't successful. So for a period of 20 years between 1973, 74, when the bombs ended, and 1994, Lao villagers were left with no, no technical help. There was no humanitarian demining, nothing. And they simply coped amidst all the bombs. In 1994, MCC invited the Mines Advisory Group, a humanitarian demining agency, to come to Laos. And uh, I went back at that time to help administer the program. We did training of 20 Lao deminers and got the project going and uh, kept it going for a couple years with MCC funding. It was much, much too large to sustain over a long period of time, so we began encouraging U.S. government and other governments to get involved. That uh, involvement began very slowly, and up until about 2008, uh, U.S. government funding totaled about two and a half to three million dollars a year. And then that's when Legacies of War got involved, and uh, I can say more about that history later, but uh, the, the sort of high point of that involvement was then last year in 2016, when President Obama made a trip to Laos and uh, in a major speech in Vientiane, promised $90 million over the next three years, 2016, 2017, and 2018, to do ordinance clearance and victim assistance in Laos. And the first two years of that 90 million, 
uh, is already in the pipeline, and we have high hopes that the 2018 funding will also be approved based on what we know from Congress at this point. One of the things that's happened over the last number of years is that initially clearance work could be done anywhere. Anytime any uh, construction needed to be done, you call the ordinance disposal team to come and they would clear and they would find bombs. In more recent years, they discovered that a lot of times clearance work was being done without a lot of bombs being destroyed. And so they decided to do a much more detailed evidence-based survey to be able to identify very specifically where there is a concentration of, of bombs that need destroying so that they could put their assets at the place where it was most needed and be more efficient, more effective. And so a lot of the US government funding is going to support this survey, which will take another couple of years. It's been going for about a year and a half to two years. And in the first year and a half to two years, they've already identified 100,000 acres that are contaminated that need clearance. And this gets put into a database. And of course, it's going to take quite a bit of time in order to get that 100,000 acres cleared. Meanwhile, they're doing additional survey work to identify other areas throughout the country uh, that will need to be cleared. And we anticipate that you know, once that's done, the survey is done, then we will have a much clearer idea of how large is the task, how many resources are going to be required to complete it, and how long it's going to take. So that's the real hope that we have at this point uh, in terms of how U.S. government funding is, is being used. The U.S. is not the only government that's providing funding. Other governments have also thrown in millions of dollars. Uh, it's now about a $35 million a year enterprise. There are 3,000 people working in the sector doing clearance work and doing education, especially for uh, children about the dangers of bombs. It's part of the school curriculum. So that's another one of those you know, long-term effects, 3,000 people needing to work in this sector doing clearance, medical work, and education uh, for years to come. So that's a short look at where it's at now with the US government and the impact of the, the Obama visit. Titus, I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on kind of the journey up to this point, you know, really 35 years of work to get to a point where there's finally some of this action happening. Um, and even in that time, we've seen the emergence of many different war-related issues that, that kind of keep rising to the fore of our consciousness, concerns about nuclear weapon proliferation, which now is again, you know, I think we're in a new situation with North Korea where again, that's rising to the fore. Um, for people in my generation, you know, I think all of my adult life, this so-called war on terror, um, has been ongoing <laughs> since 2001. Drone warfare, there's there's this list is unfortunate and long. Um, if people are looking for ways to engage, how do you, how do we get to this point? Or how do you sustain a movement, I guess, over many years? And, and what does it look like to finally get to a place where action's being taken? What does it take to get there? Well, I guess it's, I guess in some ways it's a good thing that 35 years ago I didn't realize it was going to take 35 years because <laughs> <laughs> I would have been even more discouraged than I was uh, than we were at the time. Um, a lot of factors are beyond our control. Um, and I think sustaining activity uh, and keeping pushing is is the only thing we could do so that when the time seemed right and when other factors fell into place that we would be ready. But we didn't know when that time would come. 
initially, uh, political relationships between Laos and the U.S. were very, very difficult, very cold. Uh, the U.S. Embassy never left Laos after the war, but they were down to a skeleton crew of about six to eight people. And beyond that, it was two Mennonites and two Quakers as U.S. citizens in the country of Laos. Relationships were very cold politically. Um, and so that was one piece of the puzzle. The other piece of the puzzles I mentioned earlier was while Mennonites were very concerned about this problem of U.S. bombs in Laos causing this injury and death, um, we didn't have the technical expertise to address it. But because of our presence there, we had strong familiarization with the problem and also strong motivation. If you can imagine for a moment what it's like to be in a bamboo thatched village, no electricity, no machinery, hardly a road, and all around the village are cluster bomb containers. And on the container is the name of the US company that produced this weapon. And you sit and you talk to villagers who've lost a child or a mother or a father, and tears well up in their eyes as they talk about this. And you sit down and you eat a meal together, and the, the plates and the utensils that you're eating from are made from US bomb material. And you know, they're they're offering this hospitality to you. You just feel this tremendous weight, this sense of responsibility, like I need to do something. So that, those experiences, I think, gave us sort of a fire in our bones to keep working at this, even though it didn't seem like there was any solution forthcoming. But then there were these moments when new energy came in, when new people got involved. And one of those big moments was the beginning of the campaign to ban cluster bombs right on the heels of the campaign to ban landmines, these landmine campaigners who had finally had success in getting the governments of the world to ban landmines, they wanted the next project. And so uh, they got involved in uh, the issue of cluster bombs. And since we had had experience in Laos, the most heavily cluster bombed country in the world, we got in engaged in that activity. And then I was sitting at my desk one day in 2004, and I get this phone call from a Lao American woman named Jonapa Kambongsa. And uh, she wanted to know what MCC was currently doing regarding cluster bombs and, and unexploded ordnance in Laos. She had heard that we had been involved, and she was very concerned about this. Long story about how she got involved, but she was a part of a generation of young Lao Americans who came here as children, as refugees who, as they grew into their 30s, had a tremendous uh, interest in their own identity as Lao and what had happened in the history of their country that their parents didn't want to talk about. And when she learned about the problem of US bombs in Laos, she just became very committed to seeing if there was something she could do about it. So I kind of latched on to her energy. She drew around her this amazing group of young Lao Americans that used the arts, that used culture, that used film screenings, that used cooking classes, all kinds of methodologies to engage people in conversation, to talk about what had happened during the war, what the current situation was, and what the needs were. Still, at that time, the US government was not that involved. In 2008, then, uh, Janapa pulled together a more formal, formal board, which I became a part, and we decided to really focus on advocacy with the US government. She went to the State Department and talked to the right people about what they're doing about funding for cluster bomb clearance in Laos and why there's not more money in it for Laos. And the response was, nobody ever asked. And so we began asking. 
and we got Lao people in Minnesota and Seattle and California and, and New York City and Rochester and Georgia, all over the country to contact their representatives and Congress people. So we began a very focused, specific, country-specific, problem-specific advocacy campaign. And gradually, the US government started funding more and more resources for Laos. And then there were larger dynamics, I think, that fed into this because the US government and the Lao government politically warmed toward one another. And I think we're ready to make a fresh start in their relationship. And that also played into the, uh, the uh, uh, political space in which the US could begin pouring more resources. So that's a very quick overview of sort of how many factors came together to lead to the current funding. We're really worried about beyond 2018, given the current political climate in the country, uh, the current cutbacks in the State Department and what that might mean. So we're going to have to keep this advocacy going for another decade or two, I think. But we're pleased with how much progress we've made so far. Well, yeah, you clearly still have more work to be done, but you, you've come a long way. It's, it's interesting you talk about the current climate. I, I'm wondering, are there lessons that, that you could share with us, maybe, maybe even from a personal level? How does one stay on the case with this? It's, it's from what I heard you talk about, just the, the power of, the, of what you saw firsthand was certainly very motivating. Um, but as peacemakers these days, we, we look, we see so many entrenched issues, and it seems like things certain things don't want to change or can't be changed. How, what do you draw from to maintain that, uh, that level of, of focus and, and discipline in a way over that time when things can appear hopeless? Well, um, our staff person, Janapa in Washington, D.C., goes back to Laos every year. And uh, I have not gone back every year, but I've gone back repeatedly. And again, I was there for three weeks this, this past spring. And I think uh, that is one of the uh, stronger ways to stay engaged and stay motivated, and that is to repeatedly become exposed to the human beings that are affected by this problem. I mean, to be in that Hmong Lao village and visit with this family and this group of villagers, 12 of them, who had all been injured by this cluster bomb explosion, including the, uh, the parents of the child who was killed and the teenage boy who still couldn't walk a month later, uh, it just continues to feed that sense of responsibility, that sense of motivation, uh, and continues to humanize the problem. So I think uh, continuing to keep the human face of the long-term impact of war in front of one uh, is really important as a motivator and as an energizer. And I must say, too, that having now achieved some success in our objective, I mean, it would be one thing to try to raise money on our own to go fix this problem, but we, could, we wouldn't have the capacity to raise $30 million a year. But it's quite another thing to be able to have some impact on this large thing called the U.S. government and its budget, and to be able to see those budgeted funds incrementally go up and up and up was really energizing. Because you could see that we were, I mean, I've never been a part of an advocacy campaign that had any, uh, anywhere near as much 
observable success as this. <laughs> and so to, to have that uh, begin to happen was really motivating, especially after, you know, 20 years between 1973, the end of the bombing and 1994, when nothing happened. So uh, continuing to humanize, put a human face on the problem, and then to actually see some success and some uh, evidence that you're having some uh, results, both of those things are really uh, motivating and energizing. So for those people listening, maybe some of them even just learning about legacies of war for the first time and some of these situations in Laos, what can those listening do to kind of encourage and support your work? Are there ways to get engaged? Yeah, sure. Uh, several ways I would suggest. One is to learn more about the problem. You can go to legaciesofwar.org and uh, learn more about our work. And particularly uh, if you click on the uh, press or news tag, the press tag, I believe, there's a whole series of news reports and video clips from the Obama visit that are very uh, easy to watch, very helpful in terms of explaining the problem. The second way to help is uh, to become advocates with your congresspeople for this issue. And particularly between January and March of each year, we organize a Dear Colleague letter from uh, representatives from both sides of the aisle that send the, uh, a letter around to their colleagues in the House for, set for signature. And the letter uh, goes to the Appropriations Committee urging full funding for bomb clearance and victim assistance in Laos. And it's really, really helpful to have a lot of signatures on that letter, both Republican and Democrat. So sometime between January and March of next year, 2018, we'll be doing that. And it would be great to have uh, podcast listeners uh, contact me or contact our office in Washington, D.C. and uh, ask how they can be helpful in that, in that process through contacting their, their congressperson. And the other way is through donations. Uh, as I said, we don't raise money in order to do the clearance work. We raise money in order to do the education and the advocacy. We have two staff people in our office in Washington, D.C. We prepare educational materials. Our staff uh, returns to Laos once a year in order to keep up to date with uh, people on the ground there. So we use uh, our funding for that is very, very important for us to be able to keep this, this uh, going. So learn, advocate, and donate. Titus, uh, just thanks so much for the good work you're doing there and for sharing all about it with us here on the Peace Lab podcast. I hope it continues to go well, and we will encourage our listeners to do just what you said, look into these ways to get involved, and let's keep pushing this movement forward. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and uh, I'm always happy to talk about this issue. I'm pretty much stuck with it for life, I think. <laughs> well, yeah, thank you, Titus, and thank you for listening. This has been the Peace Lab Podcast. Do us a favor. Like us on SoundCloud and iTunes and all the places, Stitcher Radio, all the places you can access the podcast. Give us a listen. Give us a download. Subscribe even. Uh, and that really helps us out. Uh, we appreciate you listening today. Peace Lab is a production of the Peace and Justice Support Network, the Mennonite Inc. magazine and website, and the Mennonite Mission Network. Until next time, I'm Jason Boone. On behalf of Hannah Heinzecker and special thanks to our guest, Titus Peachy, we will see you next time.